0: Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. We're here in the uh, studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. And thanks to the uh, stations across Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. Of course, you can always uh, check us out live on the Fallon Forum website. That's fallonforum.com slash Listen. Or if you in central Iowa, catch us on the dial at 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Okay, so later in the program, we will be, uh, we'll be discussing um, the Bear-Monsanto merger uh, with Jim Goodman. He's the president of the uh, National Family Farm Coalition. We'll also be discussing the Missouri law just, just passed. Missouri passed the law that regulates the word meat. We'll talk about that with Lissa Wade, the veggie thumper. And uh, we'll also talk with uh, Christine Nobis of uh, of Indigenous Iowa, just back from Farm Aid. Farm Aid uh, happened in Hartford, Connecticut this year. And we'll talk about the... Um, of course, the uh, lawsuit that was heard by the Iowa Supreme Court last year, last week rather, regarding the Dakota Access Pipeline. A lot of ground to cover today, so let's kick it off uh, welcoming uh, Jerry Schnorr to the program. Jerry is uh, joining us from Iowa City. He's a professor at the University of Iowa, and he has studied climate change in depth. Jerry, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Ed. It's good to be on.
0: Yeah, thank you. And uh, so, um, yeah, we've known for a while that uh, – Iowa would be wetter in the new climate era, and apparently uh, we're not being disappointed. Uh, But um, new projections um, suggest uh, even more wetness and more warmth. Uh, What can you tell us about that?
1: Well, there's a new report out. Actually, it's not uh, formally uh, approved yet, but the Fourth National Climate Assessment uh, report indicates that Iowa Uh, It gives regional projections in this report, and Iowa is uh, projected to be uh, much warmer, uh, surprisingly warmer. We haven't been that much warmer so far with climate change, Uh, we think in part because the air is more humid, and it takes a lot more energy to heat up uh, wet air, but uh, it looks like that's... Going to change in the future and will be much warmer and and still increasingly wetter. And well, we've already. How do you explain?
0: How, how do you explain the coldest April on record? This year's April was cold. I believe it was the coldest one Iowa has ever experienced.
1: Well, as you know, each year, uh, almost every year, seems to get warmer on a global average than the previous one. But uh, there's some new patterns that are being set up, and uh, some of these are blocking patterns, which changes the uh, flow of air at high altitude, the so-called jet stream. And a couple of winters uh, in the recent past, we've had a blocking phenomena, which is somewhat characteristic of this climate change, believe it or not. And that does cause uh, cold air to come down from the Arctic uh, into Iowa. We may see that again this year.
0: So is that what happened in April?
1: Uh, In April also, the jet stream uh, took a much uh, more southerly path than normal.
0: And then it got crazy warm in May. It was almost like we didn't have spring this year.
1: (laughs) True. And uh, uh, in general, as you know, we have experienced warming here in Iowa over the past, uh, let's say, uh, five decades or so, maybe about 1.3 to 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit warmer on average, and much more humid, as mentioned earlier. Right. In fact, Dubuque, uh, Dubuque has experienced since 1970 about a 23% increase in absolute humidity. The best measure of that for our listeners is uh, dew points. The dew points just keep going up and up and up in Iowa.
0: And that means le- more and more uncomfortable as well.
1: True, and uh, the the nights don't cool off, and that's not good for uh, crops either.
0: Right. Why, why is that bad for crops?
1: Well, in particular, it kind of holds the moisture close to the ground, and that can cause more fungus and ah. mildew uh, okay. problems in that respect. So
0: are farmers seeing that uh, kind of response from their crops?
1: I think we do uh, uh, see more... Uh, not only more humidity, but more problems with those type of infestations. Yes.
0: All right. So um, again, we've had some in Des Moines. We had a, a I guess you'd call it a, a, a an outburst. <laughs> it was a, a rainstorm that hit suddenly and, uh, and and with great intensity. And you had as much as. Uh, we well, had between, I think, 4 and 10 inches. We had 10 inches up uh, the northern part of the county. And that led to one death uh, and uh, record flooding in Formal Creek, homes being washed away. It was, uh, I mean, there were places in Des Moines, streets that were under 6 to, six to 8 feet of water. Uh, but now, you know, it's been more, quote, normal lately. Uh, although we had the first, uh, the first week of September during the uh, First Nation Farmer Climate Unity March, we had... Uh, six days of rain. In fact, uh, by my estimations, we had more than twice the average rainfall for the entire month, just in four days. And so, and now we're seeing tremendous rain, storms up in northwest Iowa. And in the news today, another train derailment. This one, fortunately, not carrying oil, carrying sand. Uh, and I forget the other product that it was hauling, but um, that also derailed uh, largely because because of the flooded river, flooded tracks, again because of a four inch rainfall. So it seems like the uh, the impacts of uh, of this increased precipitation and humidity. Uh, you, know, you, you know, when you just think in terms of temperature or rainfall uh, or drought. In, on the flip side, you know that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's all these other things that are happening that you don't even think about. Train derailments. Um, CAFOs, uh, uh, hog confinement, uh, lagoons being uh, washed away because of high rainfall. Um, in, in, uh, in North Carolina, the coal ash piles being you know, driven into streams because of the intense rainfall there. You know, how many more of those things that we don't even think about uh, or do we need to start uh, kind of cataloging and paying attention to?
1: Well, of course, people are uh, cataloging and paying attention to them, at least the climatologists and environmental scientists, uh, like in our center here at the University of Iowa, and we work closely with Gene Tockley at the Iowa State University as well. But uh, basically the frequency of those events are going to continue to increase. To give you some idea about a, uh, what we called a 100-year flood, Uh, in, let's say, the late uh, 20th century is now a 25-year flood in recurrence interval. So uh, just on average probability, and and the probabilities continue to change too, but so just on average we would have a a huge flood, a 100-year flood in Iowa, uh, four times more frequently from 100 years recurrence interval to 25 year.
0: Right, and is that likely to increase even further as as climate change continues to unroll?
1: Yeah, the climatologists uh, use a, a a word, a, a jargon uh, called stationarity. And that means whether you can depend on the statistics that you've compiled to project the future for you, and the answer is stationarity is dead. Uh, the, the statistics of our rainfall just continue to change.
0: Hmm. So why even pay people to be meteorologists anymore, hey?
1: <laughs> well, hopefully they're keeping track of it and giving us some idea. Our latest climate statement from uh, uh, the the uh, scientists in the state of Iowa is about to come out, and we're focusing on uh, buildings and how we're still building buildings for the late 20th century, but we need to be building buildings for uh, 2050, when uh, uh, rainfall and uh, humidity and heat statistics are much different, and so Ed, look for that to come yeah, out. Maybe Ed, I'll come on. Maybe Ed, I'll come on your program. That'd be again. great.
0: Yeah, and we're also still building in floodplains. Now, you know, yeah. you, you said, Jerry. You said that. Uh, that I, I said. Are, are people tracking all these these new impacts, these potential uh, problems? And you said, yes, climate scientists are. But politicians aren't. The press isn't. The public isn't. What do we do to get politicians to care? What do we do to get the press to pay more attention? How do we wake people up to the fact that these things are happening and accelerating?
1: Well, you, you, you raise a great point, Ed. And I think uh, uh, when I teach and when I give public uh, talks, often that's the question. You know, What, what, what can we do individually? And And, of course, there's many things we can do individually to uh, reduce our own carbon uh, footprint. We're talking about today the local impacts of a global uh, problem. So we all have to uh, participate in changing it. And um, I think that's the, 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 the key. One of the things we can do individually is vote for the right people, as you said. And that's the people who recognize this as a problem. I will say our own Iowa DOT has had an important report, uh, developed on how to improve our highways and bridges, uh, based on the, uh, projections of the future climate change. And individual cities, I think, Ed, are making quite a bit of progress, including your own, uh, Des Moines. And spending a lot of money, I might add, on, what we call adaptation—you know, mm-hmm. just adapting to what uh, yeah. climate change has already has.
0: I've never seen so many roads closed in Des Moines as there are this year, and it's because they're <laughs> they're redoing the uh, the storm sewer system to accommodate these bigger floods. So, so, so
1: but some people are uh, watching and 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 responding in a way that they can't stop the problem, mitigate it, then they're going to have to adapt
0: right. to it. Now, you say one thing, this piece you wrote with, uh, with Gene Tackley uh, called climate, yeah. climate Projections for Iowa Are Sobering. You wrote one thing there that I disagreed with, and that was you said responding to climate change does not need to be painful or costly. I understand why you'd want people to think that, you know, we can make this, make this transition without a lot, of, a lot of compromise, but I, I don't know if that's realistic.
1: Well, I think that a lot of the investment will be needed. In fact, uh, here in Iowa City, I think we spent over $100 million on the kind of things that uh, we were just talking about raising uh, highways, um, raising bridges, uh, changing electrical uh, outlets. So, but it's an investment that will pay for itself over the long run, and not only that, Uh, as we add solar and as we add more wind power, these are creating jobs in Iowa. Iowa is one of the big winners in responding to climate uh, change, just in the uh, economic engine that's created with uh, wiping out this old system called fossil fuels and replacing it with something much, much better, cleaner, healthier, and better in terms of creating uh, an economic engine for uh, prosperity in the future.
0: Yeah, well, uh, Jerry, thank you uh, so much for uh, joining us, uh, folks. We've been talking with uh, Jerry Schnoor. He's a professor in civil and environmental engineering at the University of Iowa, also the uh, co-director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research. Uh, and more to come. There'll be another report out soon. Hopefully, more than you know, more people will begin to pay close attention to it and take the appropriate action. Thank you, uh, thank you, Jerry, so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. All right, folks, when we come back from a short break, uh, the merger of Monsanto and Bayer and the potential creation of a huge monopoly uh, is causing a lot of stir. In fact, um, uh, in one poll, 93 percent of all farmers across the farm spectrum oppose the merger. We'll talk with uh, Jim Goodman when we come back from a short break. He's the uh, president of the, of the National Family Farm Coalition. This is Ed Fallon, your host on today's Fallon Forum.
3: Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sergeant's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust sergeants to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, sergeants always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sergeant's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149.
2: community cpa and associates with locations in des moines and corville is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs community cpa offers a wide array of services from tax planning to business it solutions call community cpa today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information
0: Hi, folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms, and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York, and he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to, to New York City when you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines' East Village.
3: Ritual Cafe is located at 13th and Locust in beautiful downtown Des Moines. It's a great place for coffee, tea, smoothies, and a full vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe also features music on the weekends, For more information, call Ritual Cafe at 515-288-4872. That's 515-288-4872.
2: When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, and delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining.
0: That's uh, Brother Trucker's tune downtown, and we're broadcasting from downtown Des Moines here on the Fallon Forum. Uh, later in the program, uh, Lissa Wade, the veggie thumper, and I are going to uh, duke it out over the issue of whether or not meat should be – only meat should be labeled meat or whether it's okay to label things that are made from vegetables meat. And we'll talk about that. We'll also talk with uh, Christine Nobus about her uh, visit to uh, Farm Aid and her opportunity to speak on the stage Uh, At that event. And uh, yeah, we'll also give you an update on the lawsuit filed by landowners and the Sierra Club. Uh, Those folks had their day in court last Wednesday, and now we wait and see what happens. Well, actually, we don't wait. We uh, continue to let people know how important this case is. But first, uh, in the realm of what's important, uh, the Monsanto-Bear merger. This is big news. And joining us on the phone from Wisconsin is Jim Goodman. He's the board president of the National Family Farm Coalition. Hello, Jim. Welcome to the Fallon Forum.
4: Good morning. Thank you,
0: Ed. Hey, so um, Monsanto-Bear, the Department of Justice has its reservations, Uh, although perhaps you wouldn't describe them as uh, reservations to the extent that they're going to disapprove of this merger, but uh, over 90% of uh, American farmers have concerns. I presume that you're in that category as well as someone who has concerns about this merger.
4: Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty concerned. I guess uh, in this uh, particular instance, a lot of farmers across the country, some of are organic, some that aren't, uh, vegetable growers, crop growers—they are all pretty much opposed to the merger, which is uh, a done deal. It's it's going to happen uh, because we know that consolidation just hasn't worked for farmers, no matter who you are, where you farm, or what you grow.
0: So, and when we when we say that ninety three percent of farmers oppose the merger, this includes big ag farmers, uh, uh, big grain farmers, cotton farmers. Uh, uh, those raising hogs and cattle in confinements. It includes organic farmers and small niche market farmers as well, right? Kind Pretty a... much everybody, yep, across so, the board. So 93 percent. I mean, that's – that's um, you know, an election is considered a landslide of 60 percent. Uh, if One candidate gets 60 percent of the vote. <laughs> We're talking 93 percent of a constituency that is primarily affected by this merger says no, and yet the DOJ, Department of Justice, says yes. How do you explain that?
4: Um, I guess your your guess is as good as mine, and and ninety three percent, like you say, that's pretty astounding to get uh, that many farmers, <laughs> yeah, right? Um, and granted, you know, surveys are surveys, and and the the methods that they contact farmers can can skew the results. But I, I think this is probably a, a pretty good indication that uh, farmers just don't like this.
0: And why? What's what? What are the problems?
4: Well, it depends what you're growing, uh, of course, but I think the you know the big commodity crop growers, corn and soybeans, have over the years seen the number of seed companies, chemical companies around, uh, diminish and because of consolidation. So the choices, the places they can buy their seeds and chemicals has been greatly reduced. And when that happens, you have to kind of buy what's available uh, and pay the price that they offer you to they, pay. They, so, can, they
0: can charge you more.
4: Pretty much. Yeah. You know, example, corn seed has gone up from, let's say, $80 a bag of seed to, in many cases, over $400 a bag in the last 10
0: years mm-hmm. or so. Um, so and and it,
4: the prices for the corn haven't.
0: Right. And so isn't part of the problem that uh, that we've got chemical companies merging with seed companies, and so they create seeds that are dependent upon their chemicals?
4: Exactly. Uh, you, if you buy a particular kind of seed, uh, you can only spray it with uh, a genet- genetically modified seed. You can only spray it with the chemicals that uh, it's adapted to. So you're pretty controlled there. Right. Um, and, and we saw with when uh, dicamba soybeans were introduced or legalized, uh, I think a lot of growers who didn't really want to use dicamba because a lot of areas uh had restricted the the use because of the volatility but a lot of growers bought the seeds just to protect their own crops even if they weren't going to spray that particular chemical because they could get drift and volatilization from their neighbors
0: well that's that's a great way to make a profit is to convince people to buy a product to defend themselves (laughs) against uh (laughs) against the potential liability because of that product that's uh I'm trying to think of a of an area of the economy that works that way, that's comparable, and I can't come up with one.
4: But yeah, I, I agree. It's it's uh, it's just uh, uh, unconscionable that the DOJ would put farmers in the position of having to yeah. buy something to so, protect themselves. So for
0: for me, it's always a question of following the money, and so. You know, you would like to believe the Department of Justice is free of influ- the influence of, um, of political money that is beyond the above and beyond the fray. Uh, but, you know, you have to wonder if, if if you've got, again, nearly everyone opposed to this, including I mean, I, I believe both Senator Grassley and Senator Ernst in Iowa here are also against it. Um, or have concerns about it at any rate. I can't say that for sure, but I know I know Grassley has spoken out against mergers like this in the past, and this is uh, this is the mother of all mergers. when it comes to the ag sector, uh, and so you know, with you know, who's who's pulling the who's pulling the strings at DOJ that's convincing them that this is in the best interest of our country when everybody who's most immediately affected says otherwise. Who's who, who's behind this? I mean Monsanto and Bayer, obviously, but you know, who, where's the money? What where, where, how is that? How is that money trail working?
4: Um, beats me. <laughs> you know, my my best guess is that that uh, the Wall Street investment firms don't really care what they invest in, who it hurts as long as it helps their bottom line. And I think you said it best that you know follow the money, but when you have no trail to who's putting the money in and you have no ability to find it out you'll never really know but we do know that uh, the only people that really benefit by these mergers are the companies like Barron, Monsanto and the people that invest money in those companies
0: yeah, and so well, i mean what is the, what is the what does the world look like in the future going forward i mean Again, there are only a few small seed companies left out there, and uh, we presume that this trend is going to continue, that uh, at some point it'll all be one big seed slash chemical company. And then what does the world look like when that's the reality?
4: Well, it it, it certainly doesn't look like a good place for small farmers or consumers because uh, there just won't be that much choice, and we've seen this trend in in seeds in. Machinery uh, and everything that farmers use, and a lot of people have never thought much about the the effect this has on the vegetable seed market. So yeah. even the garden seeds you buy are controlled by just a few companies. Uh, vegetable growers, the, uh, a lot of black farmers in the South that, that are still pretty independent and, and do a lot of uh, produce production, their ability to buy seeds from yeah. certain places is no longer there. Organic farmers that need to get organic or at least non-GMO seeds, uh, we're going to be affected too because that market will decline. Uh, following again the profit, and seed companies will use their best varieties to genetically engineer uh, to sell to the to the huge uh, corporate farms.
0: Wait, but now if you're an organic farmer, how how would this affect you? I think I would think you would be beyond the 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 influence that Bayer and Monsanto are trying to trying to establish.
4: Well, that would be the the conventional logic, but we know Monsanto has a sizable organic seed portfolio. Many other companies do as well, I'm sure. Um, and there just aren't enough organic seed out, seeds out there for organic farmers, be it corn, soybeans, whatever. We can plant non-organic seeds, provided they're not genetically engineered or treated with uh, pesticides. But as companies get fewer and fewer and look for you know, the biggest bang for their buck, a lot of these non-GM varieties will probably be dropped from their inventories, and, mm. and that's just one last option for organic
0: farmers. Now, I did something yesterday that, uh, I, I, what is there, 7.6 billion people on the planet? Is that about right? Yeah, uh, I suppose. I, I, I had a moment yesterday where I think I was probably the only person on the planet doing what I was doing. I was getting a haircut uh, while I was separating um, eggplant seed from the pulp, and I was throwing the pulp at a small statue of a gnome in my garden. I think I was probably the only person doing that at that time yesterday. Maybe there's somebody else doing it today. But my my point is that uh, – I, 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 that's a funny moment. But the um, the, the point is that uh, more and more people are doing what I was doing yesterday. Now, not the throwing seed – uh, throwing stuff at a gnome, but the, uh, the saving seed. More and more people are understanding the importance of saving seed from heritage, from heirloom varieties. And um, – I don't know how Monsanto Bear captures that. I, I don't know how they prevent us from doing that. I don't know how they provide, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, any 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 way to um, how they can come up with any kind of mechanism for preventing that from happening. And I think that's going to continue to grow.
4: Well, I hope so. Um, I know there have been many instances recently, and it happened to me that we were selling some of our saved. Uh, grain seed and the university says, "Oh no, we got a patent on that. You can't, uh, you can't legally sell that. Or we'll sue you." Yeah. Um, and we've seen a lot of small farmers that rely on saving their own seed uh, to get someone to clean the seed prior to planting. Those small uh, seed cleaners have been put out of business. Yeah. So there are ways, uh, you know. And I've always said, you would think with the amount of money and control these companies have, they should be satisfied, but. I don't think they will be until they own it
0: all. I think you're probably right, and I think it's up to us to make sure that doesn't happen. Jim, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Folks, we've been talking with Jim Goodman of the uh, National Family Farm Coalition. He's the president. And if folks want to learn more about the coalition, where do, they, where do we send them, Jim? He's gone. All right. National Family Farm Coalition. Okay. When we come back from a short break, Christine Nobus with Indigenous Iowa is going to join us. We're going to talk about her visit to Farm Aid in Hartford, Connecticut, here on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here later in the program, Veggie Thumper. That is Lissa Wade joining us to talk about uh, Missouri's law defining meat as only flesh of animals. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that when when she joins us later in the program. But right now I want to welcome uh, Christine Nobus to the program. Christine is with Indigenous Iowa Seeding Sovereignty. Uh, she does a lot of work for a lot of groups and uh, just came back from... Uh, the Farm Aid concert in Connecticut, where she had a chance to speak uh, before a big audience about um, about uh, about decolonization. About um, I know you mentioned the uh, the efforts we we're working on here in Iowa together regarding uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. So, what was that like, Farm Aid? That's a big event.
5: Uh, it was a big event
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 it
5: was it was nice there's a lot of effort that is put into uh you know many different aspects of this uh of this event and uh this year i, I haven't been to former farm aid events but this year there was a a one-day uh, conference uh, a couple days before this, the concert uh where uh they had different panels And um, there was quite a few uh, people of color represented on these panels, which I thought was great. Um, Only one indigenous person. uh, Like I I tend to call us unicorns in the bunch. You know, we often aren't represented in large numbers. Uh, Her name is Rachel Seat. She's uh, Mohegan from the area. Um, And they also did have, uh, I think the Mohegan people, the nation actually did uh, provide some um, sponsorship as well. So that was really cool. Um, but, as I said, um, very little indigenous representation. Uh, but, yes, I did see quite a few African-American uh, people and um, other uh, people of color represented okay. uh, on these panels.
0: And were there, were there honestly, this a serious question, were there many farmers? Because this is harvest season. So I'm always wondering why they would have a Farm Aid concert in September. But
5: I couldn't answer that, but I think so. I okay. mean, I, there was a, a lot of... You know, white people that look like farmers. I <laughs> don't know what that means. I, I mean, they're not. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even You mean they had the bib, the I bib, don't.
0: the bib overalls, and they were carrying a pitchfork?
5: The, <laughs> no, I mean just you know the, the, the style of dress. You know, yes. I don't know what that means. I have right. no idea. I, yeah.
1: yeah,
5: You know, it's it's largely um, a white crowd. Um, so that's I and you know farmers are largely you know Caucasian in this country. So I'm not really sure what that means. Um, yeah. But um, we were – so what's exciting is that there is very – there's little to no representation of Indigenous people at this conference uh, ever. I mean, they do have some dancers that come on stage with Willie Nelson every year, but they only dance for about a minute, and then they they go off – so it's not really they 're not there to, to necessarily you know speak about indigenous um issues they're just they, they dance and then you know they're they're great fantastic people and then they they're there with willie um but this year um due to um Janet McGilvery, uh the founder of seating sovereignty due to her connections, she spoke with uh Daryl Hanna, who was neil, uh, uh, neil young's wife as as some people may know, who basically um asked him to give up um or I don't know how they did it but he gave up like a, I guess a few minutes of his set so that we could get some indigenous people up there to do a land acknowledgment because this is you know ah, interesting okay. we we're, we're, we're you know this is this, these are farmers that you know whose land rests upon the you know the the you know indigenous people's land that right. came beforehand and as we know their profits and all of their you know everything that they do their, their families that, that have owned this land for generations it comes from you know a genocide
0: right so, and, how, and so how
5: did that, that pardon me, how do
0: people respond to that
5: very favorably to tell you the truth um you know it was i I wrote a speech very quickly um you know i was uh, i 'm never nervous to speak in front of you know large groups i 've spoken in at the climate March in front of like one hundred and fifty thousand that 's not a problem for me for me it was like wow, this is a very uh... you know this this uh, settler descendant uh... heavy you know audience and these are farmers and you know i i i I'm, I'm going to basically tell them you know we are i'm here to stand with you but at the same time you need to recognize like that your land this this soil that you use to grow your food is you know rests on right. a stratified history of our people yeah. and and if, to move forward from now on we need more indigenous repre- representation here. We need more African-American representation here because we have to recognize that a lot of these fields were, um, were worked by African-American people. We need more Latinx representation there because, you know, today, as we know, a large percentage of uh, farmhands are, um, you, know, uh, you know, people that I've are african up- Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. I, think, um, I think a lot of people don't realize, too, that that indigenous people on this continent— were were farmers uh, farmed extensively yeah. prior to settlement?
5: Oh, absolutely. We we had a very different way of farming, um, and in fact, I just wrote a zine uh, that I I'll send you the link to, and if you want to post your page, that you know discusses this factor, um, and 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 like we we you know we 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 didn't like you know plant things in rows, and we didn't till the fields. And now it's interesting because you know now they're going to this no till type huh, of farming is right. a much healthier way to do things, and we actually have some of our people recorded saying, like, you know, this is not a good way to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like 100 years, two or three,
0: yeah, 100, no, 100 years ago. Of course, no, for, for many for, for some farmers, no-till also means uh, heavy heavy chemical applications, but...
5: <laughs> well, it depends on how you do it, you know. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. And, right. and, and, and then also there's the diversity of what you plant. It's, you know, there's this issue of monocropping, um, which, you know, with, with, like, shallow root plants, which is why we have such a, a huge, you know, uh, soil depletion going on. Because, like, it, you know, with, with this type of cro- know, uh, farming, you, you, there's nothing holding the, the, the soil in place.
0: Right. Christine Nobis of Indigenous Iowa. This is Ed Fallon, your host on today's Fallon Forum. All right, so back to our conversation. Uh, joining me in the studio is Lissa Wade. She is known locally as the Veggie Thumper. And uh, we're talking about the, 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 the big deal in Missouri, where the state of Missouri passed uh, a law regulating the word meat. Uh, because Lissa likes to use the word meat a lot in her vegan cooking.
6: In quotations.
0: In quotations. Right yeah, in quotations. You don't. You don't always put it in quotations, do you? I
6: always put it in quotations.
0: Do you? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. I, I did not know that, but uh, but they. Um, but but e, but e, even your quotation marks aren't going to be enough to satisfy Missouri now.
6: Come at me, bro.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, they may come at you because there's a group here in Iowa talking about doing the same thing. Come at me, bro. All right, so they're going to come at you. So what are you going to do?
6: Well, I'm going to ask a few questions as far as the definition of meat because when I looked it up, it said a couple of different things. It it did state animal flesh, but it also said, hold on, food of any kind, food, nourishment, sustenance, provisions, rations, fare, foodstuffs, provender, daily bread. So, with that said, I know people will refer to meat as, oh, the meat of it or the heart of it, you know, kind of like that.
0: The guts of it.
6: Yes. And so, I guess the reason why I left things as they had been called was because meat eaters question vegetables, but you don't question your meat.
0: What you do you know? mean by that? I don't follow you. You don't
6: question where your meat came from. You don't question what. Well, your I think
0: meat more and more people do. Now. Yeah, okay. But I've
6: been in the game for a little bit, you know, I mean, I stopped eating meat. Six years ago so right back then it was everybody had a question about what was on my plate do you get enough protein This, that and the other and so it's getting people to realize if we question our food and what's in it mm-hmm. and that's why I consider it what it is because for a while there before the bus had veggies all over it and people really knew what I was doing they would say oh they told us to come to that red bus and get the pulled pork
0: <laughs>
5: yeah okay
6: <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. they didn't know it actually wasn't pulled pork, and they would eat the but, whole thing. That, I love d- it.
0: Did you put the word pork in, in, in quotation sure marks? Sure did. I always end?
6: have. Really? I always have. Now okay. people are catching on. They're like, what do those quotations mean? <laughs> well, that's <the clears throat> it's jackfruit.
0: But you had, you had an avowed uh, meat eater not too long ago, uh, totally fooled by what you were serving. I can't remember. Was it, maybe it was the pulled pork, but he was absolutely convinced that what you were serving was meat.
6: Yeah, the pulled pork and the red beans and rice typically get them, the collard greens. Almost and that, 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 p-
0: that quote, pork, is actually jackfruit. Yes. And most people have never heard of jackfruit. No. Most people don't know jack about jackfruit. Yeah,
6: okay. right? Well, it's, it's come up a lot now because when I first started using it, I didn't ever have a problem getting it. Now when I find it, I have to order it in bulk
0: amounts. Okay. And where do you, uh, Yeah, so where does jackfruit come from?
6: It's uh, grown in India, and the smaller fruit you can transfer over and make it take on any flavor you want. Well, mm. within reason, mm-hmm. but uh, it has a meaty texture, and if you shred it and whatever, it looks a lot like shredded meat. Okay. So,
0: so uh, realistically, if this Missouri law were to pass in Iowa, how would it affect your business? Uh, I mean, presumably, you still wouldn't—you wouldn't even be allowed to use the word pork in quotations under this law.
6: Well, I guess then I would have to get a group of people together and see how we want to counter that, because it's not like. Oh, you call swine ankles. If we called it swine ankles and served it to you on a plate, would you still want it?
0: Uh, what do we call it now?
6: Uh, Shanks. Shanks. But if I said swine ankles, uh, would you still be like, I know. yeah? I, I, <laughs> no.
0: I I, 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 go, I go to my favorite Mexican restaurant, and they and they, they call it they call it tongue lengua. They call it brain sesos. Yeah, that know?
6: was what I never ate when I, <laughs> when I did eat meat because I was like. <laughs> the name. Nope, I can't do it like liver. No. Never had liver. Um, what else have I had? I don't know. I mean, it's, if it bears a likeness to it and it's in quotations, people should have a right to choose what they want to call things. And yeah. also, you have a good point. So, if we're going to be on this, all those uh campaigns to label what goes into our food, like modified organisms, why aren't we on that?
0: Well, yeah, that that's a very interesting question because the um the uh the folks that are pushing this—the cattlemen's association and, and pork producers and others—they're the same group that were opposed to labeling products that had GMOs in them, and, and the same they were using the same argument. Uh, you know, we, we 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 want people to know truthfully what's in their product mm-hmm. in terms of their def- definition of meat. But you know, then that, that was the argument on the other side that they were and conveniently opposed to. So. It's um. It seems a little bit hypocritical. Very. Yeah. I guess,
6: okay, this is what I could do. I will call things with a different name because I've been spelling things a little different. Like beef, I've been spelling with a W, bweef, because I make what? it out. It's what? what So is it's wheat meat. Bweef. Yes, bweef.
0: That's almost fun to say. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, snacks, I
6: like to make up fun words. And so...
0: So I'll your belief system. My belief system, yeah. yes. <laughs> I believe that my beef is meat. Okay, that
6: is my meat, it's my sustenance, okay. and it's got plenty of protein and fiber to boot. And most people actually, if you do it right, don't mind it. All right. So if this is what it takes to get people to question more things, conscious cuisine, and make them think about what goes into their food and then showing the meat industry that the way that their practices are going are not sustainable, we cannot keep up with the rate of consumption at the rate we're going Three meals a day with all of these people living on our Earth, then okay, come so, after me. So the come a- after the wheat
0: meat. the a- <laughs> the belief, the belief, yeah. <laughs> so the actual impact on you is it would be minimal, if, if probably non-existent, but on a bigger entity like uh, Tofurky, you've heard of Tofurky, of course. Uh, yes, I haven't
6: eaten A yet,
0: turkey-like but... product. I put turkey in quotes here. Tworkey. Yes. Let's call it twerky. Twerky. Okay. No, we can't do that. That word's already got other applications. <laughs> so, so the 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 turkey-like product called Tofurky which is, again, made from tofu. Um, those folks are not happy about it. Uh, they've um, filed an injunction in federal court that would prevent the Missouri law from being enforced. Uh, their contention is that uh, Missouri has received no complaints about consumers who are confused by the term plant-based meat. So that's the argument from the National Cattle Association is mm-hmm. that people are confused. They well, And, and you, you have seen people confused. Mm. I mean, they, they, they think they're eating and they're eating beef,
6: but they or... don't question their food.
0: No, it's yeah. the
6: people who typically just eat whatever. Like they'll eat McDonald's. You don't question what else goes into your food,
0: or where that, or where that beef came from,
6: exactly, yeah. Yeah. or what was done to it before it hit your plate and your palate. So those are the kind of people that right now I'm trying to make the biggest changes with because those are the ones that we have the most work to do. Yeah.
0: So the the the, the real story here, to me, tell me if you agree or disagree. The real story here is that the. Conventional meat industry is concerned about the growing uh, interest in alternatives to a meat-based diet. And I'm am I'm, I'm an omnivore. I'm a proud omnivore.
6: But you like vegan snacks too?
0: Some of them, yes. <laughs> but I also like to know where my meat comes from. I'm very exactly. conscientious about that. Um, but uh, but you know I I th- I think the truth is that more and more people are eating less and less meat. Some not eating it at all, mm-hmm. and that's affecting the these industries definitely and they're pushing back every which way they can mm-hmm. and this is one way they think they can push back although i really don't know what impact it's really going to have little to none because they
6: had done a survey about the milks because somewhere they were saying you can't any longer call it like you know milk
0: what milk. i missed i missed this one what what
6: okay so i
0: like soy brands, milk
6: yeah like soy milk almond milk all that pea milk ripple but i call it pea milk fun to say. They were saying, um, you can't call that milk any longer, but they were like, it was causing confusion, but then they did a study, and I can't remember what the numbers were, but most people had both forms of milk in their fridge.
0: Both forms, meaning cow and... Yep. And?
6: And plant milk of some sort. Plant milk,
0: okay. Because we got almond, you got...
6: Cashew, oats, pea milk, I mean, you name it all the You mean mean from From
0: from peas, peas. okay. Mm -hmm. All right.
6: That's actually my favorite. Ripple is my favorite.
0: Okay yes. <laughs> right 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 um, So where, where th- that, was that a, a legal decision or just a...
6: I believe it was a legal decision that one oh, came up I missed before that one. this
0: I missed that one. Okay. But it, it, the, the, what's interesting to me is the pushback mm-hmm. uh, And again, I you know I will probably ha- happily die a, a, an omnivore. Uh, who's? Well, I see. I see by the rolling of your eyes, you're going to work I on it. I didn't roll them. But, uh, <laughs> they looked to be rolling to me.
6: I just looked up to we're see. On, we're on the Facebook
0: Live, systems. so we can decide whether we, could, our audience, decide whether listeners listen just did an eye roll or not. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I detected an eye roll. At any rate, um, I, you know, to me, it's what's important is where it comes from and how how natural healthy organic it is if it's Mm -hmm. if it's from sources that you trust maybe sources you raise yourself that's good you know um was it a
6: happy cow was it a happy pig
0: so it sounds like you yeah you, you you Okay. Yeah, but you're not you're not straying into the possibility that you could be an omnivore if it was a no. happy pig or a cow. I'm totally okay
6: with my okay. lifestyle. All right. All right.
0: A <laughs> all right. My turn to do an eye roll. Okay. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but you know, I don't know where this goes except that um, I I think what we're seeing is a very significant the beginnings of a very significant pushback against mm-hmm. the growing power of of a you know less conventional diet. Right. Or I mean, a diet that is becoming more and more conventional.
6: Right, people are over Big Ag, and now they're trying to figure out how they can push back as we continue to grow in this movement of changing the way we eat
0: and yeah. the way that
6: we think about food.
0: And even a lot of people in what, what you referred to as Big Ag are, I think, tired of being on a on a, on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, um, you know, and even right now we see it more than ever, especially with the tariffs that have gone into effect. Uh, you know. You know, family farmers who are trying to make a go of it in the conventional ag model are having a heck of a time.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, you know, I—I I, I mean, one way they're pushing back, of course, is through laws like this. But uh, I think a bigger part of the pushback is going to be a movement away from that into more sustainable types of types of production. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we just—we just had, you know, Christine Novus from uh, Indigenous Iowa would talk about, you know, reintroducing. Uh, Uh, you know, the buffalo, reintroducing indigenous uh, systems of agriculture. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would, you know, that would make you look very, very conservative. Um, (laughs) And what and your and your agenda, pretty moderate and not at all uh, out of the box. But uh, there's so much happening right now. It's just just fascinating to me.
6: Right. It is. And I guess people would look at their plates a little differently if they actually had to raise an animal from beginning to end, take care of it. And hunt their own animals,
0: or slaughter what they raised. Yes. Yeah. The yeah, no, it's true. Would be
6: more yeah. like, oh, let's not eat this for breakfast, lunch, and dinner.
0: I think the number of people who would de- number of uh, people who would give up meat if they had to kill their dinner, it would be somewhere seventy, eighty uh, percent. I would be in that area of the other twenty percent. I don't mind doing that. I'm okay with that. But every day. Not every day, no, no, not every day.
6: So we would reduce your footprint.
0: Uh, I already have, but yeah. <laughs> I know you have. I know you have. But... <laughs> All right. So okay, let's say that this. I mean, it looks like this group is gonna gonna push this law change in Iowa. Okay. You said bring it on, bro. What does bring it on, bro, look like in terms of actual thumper involvement in opposing this agenda? Well, and do I, you have time for it?
6: I know there are a whole lot of people in the veg community who will probably stand up along with it. So we'll make time for it.
0: All right. All right. Well, we'll see.
6: We need to have those. Uh, GMOs label labeled, too, since you want to sit here and attack names.
0: That would be a great amendment to a bill that would try to do this. And swine ankles. Swine ankles. <laughs> swine <laughs> ankles. All right. And cow tongue. All right. Anyway, Alyssa uh, Wade, the veggie thumper, joining us in the studio here. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk about the definition of meat. Yes. Good
6: to see you, Ed. All
0: right. Hey, so again, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. If you're listening on our community-owned stations, we'll have a little more conversation for you about the uh, lawsuit filed by Landowners in the Iowa Sierra Club Club and where that's going. But again, I want to thank uh, the folks here at Lorraine at 1260 AM, 96.5 FM, here in uh, Des Moines, downtown Des Moines. And again, thanks also to, of course, the other stations around the country and around the state that rebroadcast this program. Thanks to my producer, Medea Palma, and thanks to Sherry Hardina, our production assistant. All right, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. All right, so across the country, more and more people are pushing back against oil pipelines. And we're seeing a lot of action right now down in Louisiana against the uh, Bayou Bridge pipeline. And, uh, you know, the the Keystone fight is heating up again in Nebraska. And um, what has escaped attention in a lot of uh, national circles is the continued effort against the Dakota Access Pipeline in Iowa. Now, as, uh, as we discussed here in the past, um, the uh, First Nation Farmer Climate Unity March, uh, that happened uh, September 1st through the 8th. By any any measure, it was, a, it was, a, it was a successful event. Uh, we had about, uh, what, 25, 30 people participate each day. And, um, you know, nature has a way of making it clear, uh, anytime you hold a climate-based event, it, yeah, not any time, but I have found that uh, that oftentimes major climate events are met with major climate. <laughs> so we had uh, six days of rain on this March, and then uh, by the end of it, there we had over twice the amount of rain as is usually expected in the month of September, just in just in three or four days. Um, but the, uh, the culmination of this, of course, was the, the landowner Sierra Club lawsuit uh, on September 12th. And while it's impossible to say how that, you know, how that went, uh, our impressions were that we were pleased that the, um, the plaintiffs were able to offer um, strong evidence as to why the pipeline uh, should not have been given the right to use eminent domain, why the pipeline did not meet the criteria of quote "public, necessity and convenience. So we, we felt the case was very strongly presented. We felt the judge's reaction, you know, I mean, the judges, you know, the justices are going to be tough. They're going to ask tough questions. And they did that to both sides. But we felt that um, there was some understanding of the, the uh, value of the plaintiff's case and some criticism of the of the case made, the the, argue, the counterpoint made by Dakota Access and the Utilities Board. I mean, one in particular that struck me as ridiculous, and um, I, think, I, think, I think it seemed to strike the court as ridiculous, was the contention that—Dakota uh, the Dakota Access made the contention that the lawsuit was a, was, 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 had no merit because it was a moot point. The oil, uh, the, the oil pipeline had been completed. The oil has been flowing for over a year. So there's no, there's no merit to the case. It's a moot point. It's all, been, it's all a done deal. And I can't remember which justice uh, made this point, but he said, um, well, you know, if that's the case, then why should anything come before this, accord, this court? Why should any, you know, if if any if anybody you know, wrongly builds a building, tears down a forest, uh, does something that that that, that later is challenging court, why can't anybody just say, well, it's a moot point now. The, the trees are down. The building's built. Uh. The damage is done. It's a moot point. So, yeah, excellent, excellent question. <laughs> so, um, it was encouraging to see that point taken very seriously by the court. We'll see what happens. Um, we could have as much as six months to wait before the court makes a ruling. Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's incumbent upon people who are aware of this case, aware of the the damage being done by the pipeline, to continue to raise awareness about it, and. Uh, I hope that continues to happen. There's no point in just sitting back and waiting. You know, in, in the uh, In the universe of social change, very little is accomplished by waiting. You have to, Then again, that's where the word activist comes from, right? You've got to be active. You've got to be engaged. You've got to be educating yourself, educating others, trying to educate the press, the public, trying to get the word out about the the, the validity of your position. So, yeah. Um, there's not much point in just sitting back and waiting to see what the Supreme Court does. It's it's critical that we remain active, vigilant, and vocal. Okay, so um, I want to talk about one more thing here. <laughs> the uh, uh, this is a this is only partly a climate related story, but it, it interests me as as a as an urban farmer. The um, evidence is that uh, certain species of insects are in decline now. I think we've known for a while that monarch populations are very stressed. Although I will say, I will say this fall, I've seen more, monarch, more monarchs than I've seen in a long time. That's encouraging. But um, the concern is that uh, non-pest insects, in fact, insects that are beneficial, that are helpful, are in the decline. Now, I, um, <clears throat> I, I don't know for sure. I mean, I, I, I think mostly what's out there is anecdotes. The uh, the one solid study that, that seems to be available is um, is uh, one done in Germany uh, last year. It was a study that found that um, 82% of midsummer uh, of in- insects in the middle of the summer were in decline, and they based that on the weight of bugs captured in traps in 63 nature preserves across the country, and um, compared with uh, 27. Um, twenty-seven percent. I guess a few years earlier. So, um, now that's only one of the. I mean, that's there aren't a lot of studies on this, but I think anecd- Yeah, an- a lot of those of us who farm, base a lot of our decisions on anecdotes. I mean, I, 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 I know that I can't plant garlic, as early as I used to, or it'll sprout and get it'll be too it'll be too too advanced because of the warmer fall. I got to plant it later. I know that there are certain pests in my garden that um, are becoming harder to deal with—aphids—and <laughs> that's that's one of the insects that they say globally are are in are on on the ascendancy, uh, and in uh, in decline, of course, are the ladybugs that tend to eat the aphids. So, now, um, what what's causing this? Well, uh, one analyst says that. Um, the, there, there are two causes that stand out as primary in what's um, leading to more of the wrong kind of insects and less of the right kind. One is that um, the, uh, the incredible amount of chemicals we spray on farm fields to uh, control weeds, to control, control insects. And you know, again, anecdotally, I, I will walk out into a cornfield or a bean field. I'll, just, I'll walk out just a short distance even. Uh, and you see nothing but the corn or the beans. There's no plants out there, no insects, no birds, nothing. Um, and beyond the fact that those fields are being treated chemically, the fact that there are these huge expanses of land that are monoculture. Monoculture is, there's nothing in nature that, that uh, imitates the monoculture that we've developed in modern ag- agriculture but not just not just in agriculture another problem are the proliferation uh, of manicured lawns in the US uh, monoculture grass uh, usually chemical treated chemically treated um, this analysis says that the the, mono, the manicured lawns are so prevalent that added together they are as big as New England <laughs> And those landscapes are essentially dead zones. So, um, yeah. Uh, now, climate change may be playing a role in this, but, you know, there's a lot of other reasons why this is a problem and why, why we may be seeing this decline in, uh, in, in beneficial insects. And I know that, again, it is encouraging to see so many people talking about the importance of planting milkweed in order to address the monarch decline. And as a beekeeper, I know there are many people in, you know, many folks like me who who keep bees who are paying attention to the various problems that are affecting 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 bees. That's our our principal pollinator. So um, you know, the decline in beneficial insects is not just an indictment of our, you know, our fossil fuel consumption and the impact that it's had on climate change. It's an indictment of the entire approach we've used on agriculture and on how we design the space around our homes. Again, manicured lawns the size of New England. (laughs) It's a huge amount of land given over to uh, a a monoculture that has no food value either. So anyway, um, I think we could talk a lot more about this and we'll see where the, I, I just hope for more research, more information as to why this is happening and how bad it is. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here on the Fallon Forum.